Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 50. <laughs> I am Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by the one and only Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Ned Naylor Leyland of Merion Global Investors. Welcome, gentlemen. Morning. Good morning, morning. Great to have you on the show for our 50th episode, Ned. Tell us a bit about yourself. Sure, of course. Um, so I'm the manager of um, Merion Global Investors Gold and Silver Fund that invests in physical gold and silver and gold and silver mining stocks. Um, so that's, I suppose, my background. Fantastic. What brilliant timing that you're coming on the show just as gold and silver are going up. And for those people who are not aware, which which would sort of includes myself, Ned, what is Merion? Who is Merion? Yeah, so Merion um, used to be called Old Mutual Global Investors. So we run uh, single strategy funds, which we sell out into the third party um, space in all sorts of different sectors. But yes, I, I suppose after seven years of famine, as I've been saying in a sort of biblical sense, uh, our subjects become a little bit more interesting lately. So we're doing, um, we're actually doing a UK roadshow at the moment and probably see adverts in the papers and stuff for our, for our fund uh, over the next month. And so t- tell us a bit about how you got into the financial markets. Where, where did you start? Yeah, well, I started, I start, so I was a languages student originally and um, I, I stumbled across, so going back to the late 90s, it was the repeal of Glass-Steagall that made me interested in finance. Oh, right. I remember reading it. I remember reading about it and thinking there's something seriously wrong about that. Um, <laughs> maybe, what an interesting for, for those for those people who may not be entirely aware. It's effectively, Glass-Steagall was the measure that was introduced after the or during the depression to split the operations in the states between commercial investment banks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it was Clinton, Rubin, and Summers, I think, who came together. I think I remember seeing a picture of them all grinning and looking quite, <laughs> quite, happy, quite happy about this. And I remember thinking there's something seriously wrong with this. And um, so I suppose I started doing some digging and fairly quickly came across the, the, the background issue, which is, of course, the monetary system, rather more so than, than financial markets or, or investing. I, 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 get, I got very interested in the nature of money. Um, somehow I then sort of, sort of managed to get myself into private client um, world in the so 2000 2001 time frame I stumbled across Ferdinand Lipp's book Gold Wars which is a really wonderful potted history of the cyclical nature of gold and um, government issued money and I think he, he he introduces it as as basically fiat money being the money of the state and gold being the money of the individual and the cyclical nature of that and read that and then sort of become really interested in in the in the the sector itself of gold silver and the mining equities and then i've sort of plowed my way on and then three years ago we set up what is merion gold and silver now and um you know the fund is growing and i think it's 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 a good time to discuss that if you if you want to just because it's um people seem much more willing to think about these things now whereas yeah gosh even even a year ago i think people were still pretty reluctant what just to discuss gold as a as new money or or just money Bar- in general? Barbarous relic. Is it the barbarous relic klaxon should now be uh, sounding because it's impossible to mention gold without that term popping up. Yeah, he's absolutely right, Tim. And and well, I, I suppose what I mean is more that um, these these 
this subject and these themes have been apparent and, and interesting to certainly to Tim and I for a long time. But the public and the investment world have been very reluctant to to go with it as a as a meaningful subject. But I, what I've noticed in the last twelve months is a really surprising change in policymaker language, and I think that's the thing principally which changes the the environment. So, you know, in the last twelve months, you've had um, Erdogan, you've had um, Juncker at the EU Parliament saying all sorts of really strong things about the nature of the the petrodollar system. Um, and then obviously you've got central bankers buying gold in the background. You've got you've got other bits of the, the jigsaw moving sort of in, in gold's favor as well. But I think for me, the most interesting thing is this this sort of outburst of rather obvious language by policymakers about the nature of the existing monetary system being unsustainable and yes. uh, going through it, through change. And I think that that's the most important thing. Do you think cryptocurrencies have sort of made everybody look at what money is and there's been it's a factor of the huge speculative bubble that exists within the markets generally but it's it's also focused people atten- people's attention on what money actually is as well which is a if nothing else that's a good thing surely well i mean for, for me that's absolutely right i i, I <laughs> and again tim tim i'm sure will be chuckling to himself because certainly he and i've been talking about these things for a very long time and no one has cared at all and basically looked at us exactly with the with the barbarous relic um, sort of sunglasses on, and um, and you're right. You know, Bitcoin in and of itself, leave aside cryptocurrencies in a, in a broader sense, but Bitcoin um, has brought the discussion of what money is and what it can be into full view in the course of one year's price action. Has done an amazing job in getting people thinking about these things where before it just was really boring for people to think about that and they just didn't want to hear about it so yeah i absolutely agree with that um i mean i think that i think that there are some nuanced um and important differences between gold silver and 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 bitcoin um but i think it's it's absolutely part of the broader conversation and it's been very important well we can't talk about that without getting your opinion on on bitcoin is it something that you think is uh fad or do you think this is something that is worth taking more seriously, given your very good instinct as to what is a major sea change in events? So I, I think that... that I realise it's oddly, a hard question. I do. It's not well, an easy no, one I mean, to look, I think, Well, I think, it's, I think it's quite easy to answer, actually, but I think it's... it's, it's, it's so it is a big rabbit hole, but I think really that the, the fact that Bitcoin's sort of lost some of its volatility is actually very much in its favour as, a, as, a, as an instrument. Um, I don't think it's money. I don't think it will ever be money. Um, and maybe it, it could be, but I mean, it, it doesn't have a, a, the monetary characteristic because gold and silver are money, and then you've got credit, um, and then you've got these potential instruments. But I think that the lack of, or the relative lack of volatility of Bitcoin makes it more interesting um, in, as terms, of, you know, being a, a functioning instrument. But I think that really, Bitcoin has got utility in terms of evading capital controls, and I think if capital controls come in or Again, I might argue when uh, that happens again, then I think it will return to its original utility. And I, I don't think it's going away. I think all of this is very much an ongoing, evolving world um, subculture. I don't think it's going away at all. And I think it's all, yeah, no, I think it's all very interesting. I and mean, I'm certainly not an expert on it um, at all, but I think it's very interesting. 
Ned, you've, you've used the word money already. But to sort of get our, our sleeves well and truly rolled up, how would you define, how to, to someone who's maybe coming to this debate pretty much from scratch, how would you define gold? How would you describe gold as a, as a thing? Well, gold is just is just sound money, and then I say just is <laughs> very important. It's obviously, you know, that's an extremely important thing to say. But it is, it's 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 sound money, it's base money, and it's only the the only real money in the system. Everything else is credit. Um, that's why central banks have large amounts, including I think G seven. It's nearly forty percent of their reserves in gold. So for me, it's about offsetting credit risk in in the monetary arena. So you have you have bad money, which is what people use uh, per Gresham's law, which is that um, bad money will force good money out of circulation. Otherwise, you won't use it. Um, so for me, it's it's good money. Now, I will say that at that, that point, while it's incredibly important, and that's why central banks understand gold and hold gold in large amounts, doesn't matter for very, very long time frames. And then it becomes the entirety of the, the whole financial conversation for very short and very important periods. I just think that, and, and I'm sure Tim would agree with this point, you know, we're, we're quite close to one of those moments, exactly when it's going to happen, I don't know. But it certainly feels for me like we've got a bit of a win behind this, this situation at the moment that's been caused by the U-turn at the Fed, because seven years of famine in gold have been driven by a slightly uphill uh, slope in terms of forward guidance, uh, promises on interest rates, normalization of monetary policy, all that narrative that the, that the Fed sold the market for seven biblical years has, has really pretty much gone in the last six weeks. Um, and I think that that starts people again worrying about whether whether it's cash or whether it's fixed interest or short-term paper generally, that sort of stuff. You know, are people holding on to that and thinking, is that the right thing for me to be doing? Um, anyway, I'm, I'm waffling now, but hopefully no, that sort of... Not at all. No, I mean, no, the, 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 thing, the thing that, I mean, I, I consider myself extremely lucky to have been moving in circles that you might describe as either Austrian or classical economic circles since, since before 2008. And the reason I ask about the definition, because I think it's absolutely critical, and people who have thought a lot harder than me on, about this topic have said the following thing. And this is, this is something that's practically engraved on my brain. There's a chap, um, there's, there's a company called Edelweiss Holdings that you may know, uh, Ned. Um, they're based in Zurich and they, they're kind of like sound money investors. And so gold, gold and silver have always formed a part of their portfolio offering. But one of the, 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 the consultants actually on the board said the following thing. So this is one of my two favorite definitions of gold. I've got another one to follow. Gold is not even uh, an investment. It is a conscious decision to refrain from investing until the return of an honest monetary system makes a calculation of relative asset prices possible. Tell me you're reading that. I'm not, because I, rem- <laughs> I, remember, I, I remember it because it, it, you know, it took a long time for me to get there. And I suspect it probably took a long time for the gentleman in question to get there. But I think that's an absolutely stunning, yeah. if somewhat long, long account uh, and quite complex account of what gold is. So gold is different things to different people. The other definition is from friend Charlie Morris. And I think we may have used this on the podcast before. And Ned may, may have heard this one before, but it's a favorite. And, and Charlie defines gold as it's a, a, like a zero coupon perpetual bond. So it doesn't pay you any interest. But it's a perpetual bond. I know this is undated. It will never mature. 
Uh, it has no credit risk. It has no counterparty risk. And it's issued by God. I think a combination of those two gets some way to answering the question of what, what actually is gold. And it's clearly, there's a lot of moving parts there. But the, the reason why gold is, is, is not paramount necessarily, but the, to get back to sort of really brass tacks on this, and I, I don't think you can overemphasize this point enough, the, the same people who, who made that quote about, you know, it's a conscious decision to refrain from investing until we have a more honest monetary system, which may be impossible. The, the, the same people also said, you know, that trying to measure uh, the value of an asset using a fiat currency like, say, the dollar is just it's just a waste of time. It's impossible it, because it's like trying to measure a suit using an elastic tape measure. The only response is you throw away the tape measure and try and find something that that's more credible as a as a as a as a unit of uh, as a unit of account. So the reason why I think Ned and I and and, and others uh, are, are have a sort of slight the niggling concern about the nature of the markets is people are using the dollar or the pound sterling or the euro or whichever currency you like as a way of measuring things as valuing things when they themselves have no inherent value. So this is this is already an Alice in Wonderland, Alice through the looking glass world, even before you start to then bear in mind the impact of things like 10 years of QE and zero interest rates. So let's take the the sort of devil's advocate view of, of this. Um, I mean, Ned, I'd be interested in your, your opinion on, let's say, the Warren Buffett view of gold, that it doesn't pay any dividends. <laughs> and and obviously, that's something you've heard a million times. But it's it's something that I think our listeners would, would like you to, sure. to, to give your sure. opinion on. Sure. I mean, it's not it's not just wrong. I think he's lying in, he's in li- as much wow. as I think. Yeah, I think he's purposefully lying. So I, I don't think that that's, well, he's not comparing apples with apples to begin with. Well, it's not. No, but it's not just that. It's actually lying because if you're telling me that Warren Buffett doesn't understand that you can generate interest off gold, then you know I'm a sausage. It's complete nonsense. Well, it's, it's, well let's let's, let's take that point. No, let's, let's, you, you just you just lend you it. You can, you can lend skittles to the market if you want to. It's okay. absolute demonstrable nonsense. And what's more interesting about it is not only you know he's way too sophisticated to pretend he doesn't know that but the other thing is of course is the reason people don't lend gold in the market is because it's the only thing which doesn't carry its own inherent uh, obligation or counterparty risk so of course you don't lend it the only people that lend it and generate interest off it are the banks themselves and by the way not only do they do that they imagine it into existence in the first place before then charging interest on it oh, so, so they so don't actually it, have it basically so this so this is another rabbit hole but it, but it's but yeah the Warren Buffett sort of um, <laughs> yeah I, I mean I often get on my on my high horse about that because it does come up as a as a narrative. Could, this, about, could oh, this could this be the same Warren Buffett that speculated in silver and then quite went went slightly badly wrong and currencies yeah. too. But but let's let's take his I mean let's take his argument about um, what he would invest in say in equities. And if you invest in equities and the value of your currency is is going down, mm-hmm. gold gold may rally in that environment, but so will equities. And at least, at least say if you own a farm and it's producing something, it's yielding something, then that is. I'm sort of talking a value cool. investing style of investment using his argument. Um, it, if you take the Tim Price uh, strategy, that is to say you invest in companies like that, but you also invest in gold. He's obviously dropped the gold part, but what, what I'm saying is I'm quite interested in 
in just going all out. I'm not saying buy equities, but I'm interested in his view in going all out in equities as as opposed to gold. Sure. Well, look, I think that um, <laughs> this whole subject, the, the more you get into it, the longer time you go into it, the more you realize what you have to do is go and challenge your input assumptions. And there are a couple of input assumptions into this which are important to, to consider. Uh, principally, it's the one about um, the true purchasing power of money and how that's measured. Because you can go back and look at inflation um, on a, on a pre-adjusted basis. What I mean by that is in the mid, well, early 1980s, everyone's um, uh, measure of inflation started to change dramatically. It, it, it started in the US at the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics where political pressure was brought to bear. And I'll say that was partly a reaction to what gold had done to the, to the monetary system in the sort of 78, 79, 80 period. But um, effectively, what had been a constant standard of living, so all the way until 1983, the way that inflation was uh, measured was was the same. It couldn't be adjusted. It wasn't fiddled with. It was fixed, and it was called a constant standard of living. And ever since 1983, you've actually been subject to something called a constant level of satisfaction, which I, I think Mr. Orwell would have enjoyed that particular phrase. Um, but basically, everything has started to be altered. You can run the inflation data um, using the original unadjusted numbers. And what that tells you is a very interesting story about everything, gold and equities included. And we, we run this on, on our desk. And I think the number is, if you adjust the Dow Jones from 1983 till now, based on the, what I will say to you is a, is a true reflection of the loss of purchasing power. The Dow's up, I think, 15% since then. Wow. Rather than 23 times or whatever the nominal number is. So, so for me, I think there is an underlying truth in what you say, which is that equities are an active investment in real participation in the economy, and you can certainly beat the market. But I think one has to be very, very careful about you know, the input assumptions. I, I sort of now... Don't accept any input assumptions. I'm going to go back right back to the beginning of everything and, and always say, well, hold on. What are we taking for granted here? Um, and this one, I think, is a big one. And it's it's certainly a big can of worms to open up. And of course, if you do that since 1983, gold is also down. Um, however, that they're probably partly uh, thanks to the fact that it had that huge run just before that. And then we entered a on a relative basis, a positive real interest rate world, if you accept the data, all the way from sort of 1983 through to 2001. And then since 2001, on an adjusted basis, gold has actually beaten um, both the market and real loss of purchasing power. Uh, but yeah, so I, look, I, I, I buy the, the equities and gold angle, but I, I, I challenge the input assumptions. I guess what's, what's fascinating about all of this is you're looking for the end game of a series of policy decisions that are being made that are clearly unsustainable. And for example, my opinion on the euro is that it'll eventually break up, but you don't necessarily know how long it will stay in effect until it does break up and what the breakup will look like and that what pieces it will break into. But with gold, why not hold it just because maybe in two years, maybe in five years, maybe this year, the, the financial system is, is going to finally 
the chickens of the financial system will home, come home to roost and then people will see money for what it is, that it's been completely debased. It's for that reason that I'm thinking that, you know, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have a place as a payment system. Um, but I'm not necessarily a fan just per se. I just think that there's 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 got to be something that replaces or or there's got to be a price to pay for everything that that's that's gone on you know starting with the glass seagull breakdown of the glass seagull act and also with the dollar coming off the gold standard in the 70s which was supposed to be temporary yeah i mean bear in mind though that you, you've tied together a few interesting points there and particularly about the euro i don't have a strong view about the eurozone but there's not a lot of doubt that the euro is constructed by central bankers who understood the issues of the petrodollar system um, and you know the fact that the, the the member central banks of the eurozone have vast gold reserves is no is no coincidence i mean you know i was in germany about a year ago speaking to i suppose 50 or 60 professional investors um, and i asked them what the bundesbank's um, position was in gold as an overall percentage of reserves. Now, Germans love knowing stuff like this more and more than anybody else I meet with. You know, they they like to know these things, and no one, no one in the room knew. They're all looking at each other, going, uh, "Surely someone's going to put their hand up," and no one did. And when I told them it was sixty-seven percent of the Bundesbank's reserves, I have to tell you, the the room, there's just a sort of sea of of, of teeth suddenly appeared uh, as the grins passed around the room. And they all looked at each other and went, I like the sound of that. Now, of course, that's also true of, of, of Italy, Greece, um, France, the Netherlands, etc. Not Spain, weirdly, they're down at 13. But, you know, I just, I always challenge people on the euro because if they can keep the political environment together, I'm not saying they can, but I do think that the way they constructed the currency unit was very much with what we just have been discussing in mind. So I think it was constructed in the in the 90s in the knowledge that at some point, let's say in 20 years' time, all of this would become really, really important. So I just always say, look, just be careful with assumptions about the euro, not so much about the eurozone, but the euro, because it does seem to have been constructed by people who understand these problems. It's worth, bear, it's worth repeating, isn't it, Tim, that... Uh, that- China, for example, which could be the big powerhouse economy going forward if if America is in decline, as many people seem to think, um, that they don't export an ounce of their gold, which is yeah the the the, th- the thing. I mean, I, I think Ned can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but my understanding we've we've used this as a sort of pop quiz with with prospective clients in the past, and we're talking about our, our process. And the three questions that we've we've said are you know, which 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 country in the world is the largest at a sovereign level, it's the largest gold miner. Which country doesn't allow an ounce of that gold for export? And which country has advised all of its citizens to, to own gold? And I think, unless I'm mistaken, the answer in each case is China. The advising them to own it, is, is that's fascinating. I mean, I wonder how they, they, that manifests itself, whether they, they do like public information broadcasts where you think you should put that in your, pol- in your portfolio or whether they just advise financial advisors to tell that you know people to put more of their money into it or their game shows are sponsored by (laughs) by the world gold council (laughs) well i think you know so tim there's a couple of things there the first is you know there was definitely that period wasn't there about two years where they were where they were doing adverts on on state tv you know go down your local bullion dealer 
But I, I also will say to you, having been uh, taking the fund off to Asia to, to try and whip up interest over there, and, and they're not interested at the moment because Asians seem to be way more sensitive to momentum. I mean, we're terrible momentum chasers as well, by the way, but they're even more like that. But what they are doing is is buying and selling at bank level yeah. even more paper gold than we are. Um, now, the only difference is that they actually call it paper gold. So here in the West, we, we buy and sell um, basically credit instruments with gold written on them to customers, um, you know, in vast quantities. But in Asia, they do in even greater quantities outside of the reported LBMA system as well. Uh, almost all of it exists in um, untracked quantums, but it, they so openly call it paper gold, which makes me wonder who's more stupid, the customer or the bank. Um, well, then there, is a, there is a more speculative gene, I think, at work in the Asian, you know, to, 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 you know, to use a broad brushstroke, in the sort of Asian psyche, the I mean, I, I, at this point, regular listeners will will start to hear the gears of my uh, uh, hoary old chestnut machine slowly grinding into grinding towards <laughs> grinding towards this podcast. It's my single favourite quote. It's from I think '98, the the Asian financial crisis. And it's a it's a quote from a Hong Kong little Hong Kong housewife who said, "I don't know what to say. I've been in the market since January. I've never seen anything like it." <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. But it, it, you know, I explain. I explained in in many banks in in Chinese banks in Hong Kong uh, and Shanghai that this problem of paper gold and what it means, and you know, you really shouldn't be selling this because uh, you know you're just opening yourself up to a problem, both you and the customer. Um, you could be doing it properly. It's not going to be that more expensive for either of you. And they just were just staring at me completely just failing to even clock the issue. Um, I mean, what, there's a quite interesting difference here in the West when you explain the problem to professional investors in the West between paper gold and, and the real stuff, they look absolutely horrified. I don't know whether they necessarily move or do anything about it, but they do look at you thinking, oh, wow, that does not sound good. Um, but actually, my experience in Asia, they just say, you're going, this all seems completely fine. Um, I mean, it seems to it seems to me that the the idea of kind of speculating in you know what we're calling here paper gold is 180 degrees opposite to why you'd want to hold gold in the first instance. Um, so if if I look at say my own my own uh, reasons reasons why it would be in I, I try we try not to get um, my colleague Killian and I try not to get sort of waylaid by narratives. So I think ever since 2008, the big danger to any investor is that you buy into a narrative about any given market that turns out simply to be untrue. So we try and mm -hmm. make everything valuation based or at least there's some semblance of logic rather than a kind of a purely subjective opinion about where a given market may or may not be going. But the I suppose if there is a sort of if there is an overarching narrative that sort of transcends all of these caveats, it would be and this is this gets to the heart of why I think gold is is supremely relevant today in a way that maybe it hasn't been as relevant before the crisis. It would be, you know, that 2008 was basically a cardiac arrest for the global financial system, the banking system. And what it revealed was a world that was drowning in debt. And the policy response by central banks and government to that debt problem was to issue even more debt. 
So the idea that we're somehow mysteriously out of the woods through a con combination of QE and ZERP, zero interest rate policy, seems to me to be completely fanciful as a concept. And to bring things like up to speed, a la, you know, January, February 2019, the fact that the, the mood music seems to be that the Fed has now effectively done it its own little sort of vault farce in terms of monetary policy. So until quite recently, the, the, the idea was that it would be a few, a few Fed hikes this year. That seems to have gone out the window. I think Jay Powell has basically been taken into a, a dark room by President Trump and beaten about the face with a, you know, with a, with a mallet uh, <laughs> to try and get him on side. So now the, the, the mood music is that the Fed may, may already be done. Uh, in terms of hiking, hiking policy, and at which point I simply quote uh, an economist, Daniel Lacal, who just said, I, I found this on Twitter during the week, and he said, an economy that cannot take 3% rates with 3.7% unemployment and a 3.4% annualized growth rate is either not a strong economy or the central bank policy only looks to inflate financial assets. And that, that seems to me to be a perfect... Uh, sort of encapsulation of the issue that, you know, in, in a sense, it's like, be careful what you wish for. Well, the markets, I'd say the financial markets, particularly in the US, have been conditioned for really all of our lifetimes, certainly our careers. Uh, basically, every time there's a problem, the Fed will cut rates. And having had that kind of Pavlovian response, you know, the, the market is now addicted to, to easy money and to uh, basically the Fed put so my, my question, I'll wrap up this point now, my question would be, what happens when the Fed decides to throw a party and nobody wants to turn up? Yes, and, and the inevitable... That is, it, it's inevitable that this happens. That's that's the that's thing. We, but we just can't put a time frame on it because it's sure. not it's not possible to game the system like this for such a long time without any consequence to bear. There's something has to give. Well, you can't put a time frame on it. But what you can say, I mean, particularly with gold, gold genuinely is the inverse of real real interest rate expectations, which sounds sort of complicated, but. It's about the market's forward-looking expectation about purchasing power, and that vault fast, as Tim refers to, you know, this is huge because it, it, basically the the Fed has been holding the market's head up above the waterline for seven years, promising normalisation, and the market has willingly believed this. And it's interesting what 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 I can't remember which one of you mentioned this, you know, this environment we're in where people. People know everywhere I go. Everybody knows it's not okay. That wasn't the case before 08. Before 08, it was also very obvious the whole thing was going to fall over, but no one saw it. Everyone thought it was all fine. No one thinks it's fine now, but they're just going about it. And and it's been this promise of we're unwinding, we're 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 doing this. I think is the fact that they backed off that is a very very big deal. And I don't think that the the overall broader market is properly clocked that point yet. I mean, I'm not sure I completely agree about Trump. I, I think it's amusing that Trump um, demanded a halt in, 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 in rate hikes when he did. But for me, it's it's going to be more, it was just basically what credit markets were doing yeah. and, and actually not even equities. You know, it was, and this of course is right, this point about an economy which can't cope with a few small rate hikes out the basement and, and all uh, cutting edge credit instruments, i.e. cutting edge as in low quality ones, were falling apart the seams, um, you know that that's led to a huge turnaround in 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 language and and policy direction. And I do think that it's meaningful, and there is an important timing indicator with this. 
Um, albeit, obviously, yes, I mean, you can't time anything perfectly. I do think this is a big, a big difference. Um, and hence why I'm using that biblical reference of seven years of, of famine for gold investors, because it's seven years of promises and they appear to have dried up. Do you think we would ever go back on the gold standard? It's a, it's a many layered answer because, you know, what, what do you mean by gold standard would be the first thing. Um, well, I, I, do think, I do think that gold will return as money. I think it's inevitable um, because I think that, that the issue that, that we have is this uh, unipolar monetary environment, which was imposed by the US in 71, and we've stumbled along ever since, needs the discipline of an apolitical um, central focal point. Um, as Grant Williams calls it, what does he call it? The, the alpha, alpha monetary instrument in the middle of the, of the, of the pack. Um, I think it's inevitable. But what I think is more interesting, though, is, is what, would this, what would the central banks say about this? Now, for me, the central banks would be quite happy for gold to be money again. Um, it seems they, like a strange. They've, thing got, they've got all of it. Well, they've got a lot of it. Well, well, that 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 too. But they all they care about is control. I think, Tim. You know, I don't think for for me, a central banker is just it's just about maintaining control of the state through the through the um, the the levers of power of the central banking system. Now, of course, the commercial banking sector uh, there's some profoundly ugly consequences for the commercial banking sector with this conversation. But for the central banks, I don't think they care too much. And actually, the state. If the if the supra state could agree gold is money again, and actually your outcome is that you're using something which doesn't require you to pay vast fees, exchanging um, you know one monetary unit for another, and your 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 money retains its purchasing power against goods and services, you're going to be happy with that outcome too. And I think the state would willingly deliver that back if it gets. A big enough payback from that change or that 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 historical loop of going back to gold as money, and I think that that were that to happen, it would be in the form of um, the cashless society and it all being on the on the books in some digital way, which um, you know is basically, of course, the wet dream of the of the state. So I, I think it's entirely likely. I don't know when, um, and I and I think that probably. I'm afraid you can see a confluence of all sorts of narratives here, which is, you know, us as as gold investors and people interested in those things, we sort of get what we want, we think. But the state, I think, remains, um, you know, comfortable with the outcome. I don't know. What, I mean, what do you guys think of that? Well, I, th- I think what you what you just said is is, is interesting, and and it highlights what the, there's one lobby that, that that's just been alluded to on passant, which is the banksters. The idea that the banksters would relinquish their control on effectively the levers of power, I think, is unfortunately is unrealistic. If you know, there was if you thought that Brexit gave you an insight into how uh, how an elite behaves when it gets turned down at the opinion poll, get a load of how the banking system would cope with the return to the gold standard. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose that is true, but. I would I would also argue that the banking system, the commercial banking system in its current format, is entirely unsustainable. I think it's it's just a model which has run its course. I, I don't. It, I don't well, really it, may, it may be. Sorry to interrupt, Ned. It may be that actually the the next iteration of the banking crisis is manifest in the eurozone because unless I'm, I think I may be slightly oversimplifying, but the way I would look at the the banking sector globally post 08. The U.S. 
restructured. We largely restructured and Europe hasn't started yet. And that's a big missed opportunity. Um, well, look, I don't know enough about about the 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 the, the European or, or any of these banking systems under the covers. But the problem is, is Tim, well, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure anybody have, does. That's exactly the point I was going to say, which is I can assure you, neither the bank analysts I talked to either. When I pushed them, uh, the truth comes out, which is these are making all sorts of assumptions about what goes on in special purpose vehicles and stuff, which they don't have access to. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure I buy that really, if I'm honest. Um, you know, the idea that our banks are in rude health. Yes. No, I'm not saying and, that. I'm just saying is we, we've gone some way towards at least trying to sort of steady the ship. Whereas I don't think that the banking, that the, whether the major banks in Italy and France, et cetera, et cetera, have even started yet. Or Germany. No, I know, I mean, but, the, fact that we, the fact that Deutsche Bank, which is the, you know, in some respects, the largest, well, the largest bank in the continent, the largest bank in Germany. And, you know, well, what is what is Deutsche Bank share price telling you, Paul? Like it may have a bounce, but it's just downward trend. I mean, that's that's a trend in all the banking stocks, pretty much. They're either going sideways or 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 in a downward trend. And uh, that's been one of my arguments about why we're not out of this out of the woods in terms of the, the financial mess that uh, started in. Well, let's say how far it's gone back. But from the crisis of 2008, you can't have a functioning economy without a functioning banking system and we just but don't the, have but, it. The, the, but the really interesting thing now is that and i'm, I'm minded to, to remember some quotes from 20 plus years ago and I, and I don't know to whom this should be attributed but i think maybe several people have said it banking is necessary but banks aren't so yes. it, it almost feels like we're in this sort of like this 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 sort of fan de siècle moment where you know we accept you know that we accept that a modern economy needs credit to function but the modern economy doesn't need, you know, century old traditional banks to function with high street branches and all the rest. And you, you could I think I mean, I'm not a, a fintech pioneer, but it, I don't think you need to be one to appreciate that the banking system has a very kind of, you know, whimsical, fuddy duddy, basically out, out, out it's outlived its purpose. It's now yeah. a declining utility that every so often has to be bailed out by the taxpayer. Well, I can think of better things to do with my money than bail out a lot of crappy banks. Yeah, and actually, I, 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 I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but it's absolutely a true story. I, I suddenly looked at my daughter, age 10, and realized it was probably time that I mentioned this to her. Um, and probably be people listening going, you did what? Well, I, you know, I said to her, I said to her, Do you, you, you know what a bank is, don't you? And she looks at me and she goes, well, yeah. And I go, you know, they, they, they take your money and then, you know, you go and get it out whenever you want. She, she looks at me and she's got already, she knows me quite well, obviously. And she looks at me and she's like, oh God, what are you going to say now? And I go, I go, well, look, that's obviously not how it works. Would you like to hear how it actually works? And she's like, okay, go on she then. Said, no, no, dad, I've already been, I'm already really passionately behind modern monetary theory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. I said, I know, I know more about this than you could possibly imagine that. No, no, and, and I just said to her, I said, look, you know, they, they, they take 95% of your money, um, go and speculate for their own account, create rigged bets to make sure they win, uh, take the profits for themselves, except when they make a massive howler and lose, and then they give you the bill. And um, her face was absolutely genius. She was, <laughs> she was not impressed. And I, I was quite happy with the chip off the old block moment where I look at her and she was furious about it. And has gone storming around school, kind of whipping up uh, <laughs> her friends as well. But it's it, got to school wearing a, a gilet jaune. Well, you know, but it, it but it is still the same point, which is which is what you were just saying, which is that you know it's totally and absolutely. Well, it was a 
frankly, a preposterous model in the first place. But, you know, we've got to the point now where even people, you know, real people who are unaware of these macro issues are not willing, and they've clocked it, they're not willing to pay um, whatever it is, 6% in a supermarket in, in, in Valencia to buy, you know, a small basket of, of food when they're on holiday. In other words, 6% on top just because they're using the old school banking system. You know, all of this, this, this is not, it's just, as far as I'm concerned, it's already over. It's just a case of how long before it manifests in a new format. Now, I agree with you about the bankster point. You know, sure, Jamie Dimon's going to be had to be dragged kicking and screaming from the scene. But for me, I do think that that is kind of a done deal, given you know, given the requisite time for it to actually sort of finally happen. We're looking at gold, but do you also look at silver as well? And it's part of your 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 portfolio. Do you see silver as having a role, or is it just the you know the poor relation? No, 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 absolutely. So, so one of the differences with our fund is that we hold a, a lot of bullion. So even now, we're very, very bullish. We have just under twenty percent in physical. Um, not held in the format of um, of, of ETFs, etc. By the way, um, but we also we use silver as the other end of the barbell. So silver has broadly a beta of two, um, which means you you know if you're bullish, you you should be using it. And the thing about silver is a little confusing for people because sil- so so gold is not a commodity. Gold is just a currency. Now it, do- it does get mined, so that can, can cause some confusion. But it's a currency, uh, and it's just hoarded as a currency. Whereas, by the way, even jewellery is a, still a currency. It's just a worn currency. But silver is both a currency and it trades on currency market dynamics, but it also is is a commodity and is consumed in industry. And actually, that gives it a sort of unpriced optionality of a potential um, demand squeeze uh, at some point because industrial users have to have this stuff. And we actually do see some of our sort of mid-cap silver mining stocks doing direct offtake agreements with industries, sort of big electronics businesses, uh, trying to get past the, the, the just-in-time banking system delivery of silver to the customer, which is, you know, rather like the sort of supermarket chain in the modern economy. Um, you know, they are going to the mine gate saying that we want to secure that. So, so yes, no, we think silver is absolutely the right thing to deploy in the right quantum in a portfolio of, of assets in, in the sector. Um, and, and yeah, today we have, I think, 45% or thereabouts in silver and silver equities in the portfolio overall. And what about platinum? Would you look at that or is it not part of the portfolio? So, so platinum is not money. Um, platinum is, is, is a industrial metal. Um, and now it can be used in jewelry, um, and is, but it's not, it's never, it doesn't trade in FX markets. It's not, um, a monetary unit. So, so what I tend to do is make the point that gold and silver are monetary metals, whereas platinum is a is part of the precious metals complex. That's the, you know there's a difference between the two. And there's also an industrial, um, let's say, sensitivity, isn't there, with platinum and palladium? Well, of course, because so much of <laughs> so much of their usage is in is in catalysts um, that you know. The sensitivity for me is on the downside. Something comes along, you know, nano, nickel or whatever, and replaces the utility of um, platinum and or palladium in, 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 in catalysts. Then, yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of 
a lot of negative potential skew there in that in that. But I mean, it's just being honest. For me, it's just it's not a monetary instrument. Therefore, it falls away anyway. So is that there's a secondary sort of aspect to this in terms of buying gold? Because if you were to, w- would you look at like say things like Krugerrands or or you know old gold coins as investments as well in their own right? Numismatic coins, for example. Well, I think you need to be an expert in those. Really, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that they can be a good a good investment vehicle. I, I tend to think that sort of heads a bit more towards. I mean, not as far, but towards gemstones because you're, you know, you're you're bringing other things into it that lie beyond fungibility. So the thing about gold and silver is they're fungible. Um, you know, each and every single one is the same as the next one. As soon as you start adding numismatic value and you're adding in, you're, you're completely altering that uh, that underlying pitch about about money. Um, so I'm sure they're they're interesting. And actually, just to loop back the beginning, we were discussing, and Tim mentioned this this quote about you know gold not even being an investment um that's that's the point you know so so numismatics are an investment and it may may go up or down um i mean i learned this the hard way sorry to interrupt so is is the argument effectively that classic gold true gold is fungible and these other numismatic things are basically collector's items and they're kind of unique i mean i I want you to i want you to finish your point ned but my my point with that is that it, you get the fungibility of gold because you can always if you're saying jewelry's currency then you because yeah. you can melt it down well you can melt down a a numismatic coin but you get both the upside of the fact that it's a rare coin plus the fact that it's gold as well that that was that well was yeah my... but it, that depends what that depends what premium you pay so yeah that's true <laughs> yes if you pay a twenty nine percent premium and then and then melt it down, then arguably that's not quite the same thing. So, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, it, but that's that, is, could it, you not say that about jewellery, though? Well, you okay, so this is very interesting. So you can, but 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 it depends where you do it. So if you <laughs> if you talk about jewellery that, that that one's wife might buy in, in a in an absurd shop on, on Bond Street or try to, um, unsuccessfully in my case, um, then yeah, you're paying whatever it is, a four hundred percent markup. But if you go to India. I mean, finished jewelry in India has a lower premium than bullion coins do in the West. Really? So, wow. so no. Wow. Um, I mean, this is a really important point. You know, they, 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 they the idea that they would pay even ten percent premium is is laughable to an Indian. I mean, they just look at you going, "You're completely mad. Why? Why are you doing that? It wow. just doesn't work like that." It, you know, it's it's a it's money. It's not. It's not seen that way. You're not going to suddenly pay vast amounts more for someone's workmanship. The workmanship is a given. That's so interesting. That's very interesting. Um, and actually, you know, that's why. So, 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 you know, there are. There are. I'm not going to. I'm not going to pitch it because I have an investment in it. But there are. You know, there are people trying to deal with this problem in the West and 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 deliver uh, finished jewelry um, in in a format whereby you're not paying absurd premium so you can hold it as an investment and also wear it and i think you know that this is um part of the overall education piece that people realize that they can have finished jewelry from from india at a tiny premium versus what they pay on the high street they would understand gold better and they probably wouldn't be buying the jewelry um for a 400 premium either you look at the, the the broader financial markets and do you have an opinion as to where they will go like where equities will go over the course of the coming months and years, for example. Well, I mean, I have to be a bit careful with that, but yes, um, yes, of course. And and what's I think relevant to point out here is I think if you're interested in the monetary system, and I I, I can speak 
sort of marginally for Tim knowing him a bit is I think that once you once you sort of clock the problems of the monetary system, you become more interested and more want you know you want to talk macro a bit more. Um, I mean, clearly, I, I don't know. You know, equities could go down or up, and it could go up like a rocket or straight down like a waterfall. But for me, right now, in light of what's happened in the monetary system, this U-turn, um, where previously I was nervous for equity longs. You know, now I would tend to say I'd be nervous for fixed interest cash. Um, the, the, that part of the overall capital structure, uh, which is, is bigger. I don't know what, what exactly what numbers are, probably two thirds or, or three quarters um, in, in paper and a quarter in, in, in physical and equity instruments. Having said that, personally, <laughs> I have to admit, I do look at the technicals and think it does look a bit ropey in the moment. If I, and if one was looking for a was looking for a reason to be to be cautious, for me it would be it would be Tesla. I, I do I do look at that and think, God, I, you know, if that does happen, then I think there are going to be pretty big consequences um, in markets because I think it's 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 one thing when Wellcom and Enron and these other things blow up slightly unexpectedly i mean not necessarily to the people that have been forensically examining them but but with this one i you know i look at it and i i do wonder what the read across will be and what do you guys make of what's going on with that i mean i can tell you the chart of tesla's it just in a in a big range i mean it could all tens and purposes break out in either direction i'm not really sure but i think broadly speaking the markets are in a secondary kind of recovery to create what i believe will be a much bigger sort of topping formation from a technical point mm. of view. Um, so in other words, we've seen a minor top, which is what caused this downdraft in the markets. But because we're looking at such a massive, massive mother of all tops, as I like to describe it, it's very unlikely that the market just turns on a dime like that. You, If you look, if you go back to the um, dot-com boom and bust, what you'll see is that the markets went up like a rocket, had a, um, a a retracement, a sharp pullback, but then they went sideways for a very long time. And then you saw the collapse. And that was that, that sort of topping process where you get the, 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 the people who have Pavlovian responses to just buy the market all the time are, are, are continuing to buy and the, the, the kind of smarter long-term money thinking this is it, this is let's just get out of this, we can see the ship sinking. Um, and you get this sort of sideways move for, and it, it can be for months, maybe even for a year or two, and then the market goes back down again. So I think we've seen, we've seen the cracks, the big crack in the system whereby the market has gone down and given everybody a wake-up call. You've seen the yeah. push-me-pull-you situation where the Fed have obviously responded to the fact that the markets have gone down because despite what they say, we know that that's what they're going to do. And if they decide not to do that, then that kind of fits in with the narrative of what they did in in the, the Great Depression where they just held interest rates up no matter what the markets were doing and caused it to, to everything to collapse. So if they decide to do that the next time, then you know it, it kind of fits in with with uh, where we are in the system, there'll be just be a big reset. So, so the way I see it from a technical point of view, um, we, we're also seeing a breakdown in the the traditional or what's been the big drivers of of the rally, i.e. the the uh, the fangs. So the fangs that have just been in straight line upward moves, and y you know you get fired for not owning them. Um, that's a 
situation that can never be sustained. So we've seen the cracks yeah. in the armour there. But in short, the market markets are moving into a consolidation kind of stroke reversal period before we see this big downward move that I, I feel is somewhat inevitable, but yeah, timing to be decided. So Tesla sort of has defied gravity for a very long time. Well, I guess... I guess you just sort of made the point, though. Really, you, you, when you were talking about the market, I'm 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 hearing you talking to me about Tesla, um, about going sideways in a in a chopping fashion yes. as people come and support the narrative. Um, whereas for me, the the story's out, um, and it's just a case of of when. Um, now, whether it's this convertible payment or whatever it is, I don't know. But for me, um, and I just think that because it's such a big new, you know, it's a big it's a big stock in terms of its of its of its meaning and its 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 read across and its potentially also the way that it's woven into the um, the sort of the sort of state um, propping up um, the corporate mainframe. I don't know. Like for me though, it's sort of stinking quite badly at the moment. And I and I like what you said very much. And I think that rather describes my sense of exactly that point. Um, but you know, who knows? Equally, it may go straight up, and we'll see. But. For me, I, I, I think that could be something that could be a catalyst. There was a guy in the States who I thought he expressed this really well quite recently. And he said that these, I think this is in a Wall Street Journal article, that he, he expressed it as, uh, you know, that the mood in, in venture capital land has really, has really cooled. The, the enthusiasm for sort of big tech has really cooled. And he said the way it was expressed was FOMO has been replaced by sobs. So fear of missing out has been replaced by shame of being suckered. That was a nice way of putting it. Smarter people than me have looked at the the sort of financials behind Tesla, and it's not. It's interesting that you mentioned this, Ned, because I, I didn't see until you've mentioned it that this was a kind of bellwether for the whole system. And if if Tesla goes down, then it's then it's indicative. I I I always thought it would be more financial than the fangs, but but that that's, that's so it's, a, a bit, it's, a bit, it's a bit like saying what is bad for Tesla is bad for the U.S. market. Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting point. So. Um, but the people that, that look closely at the finances from what I've read are saying that they're losing money and they don't see how they can how it can work. And it reminded me of a quote that Tim made, the dot-com boom, when they're losing money on every trade, but they're going to make, make it up with volume. Exactly right, exactly right. Yeah, but uh, if, if that's the case, then, yeah, they, of course the market can just be up there, you know, until reality hits. But when it does hit, it will hit hard. Well, the thing, I think yeah. the thing is with Tesla is it's exactly like the kind of the 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 first wave of sort of dot com ebullience because the the, the beauty of the the original dot com insanity was that because companies weren't constrained by things as dollars, earnings, or even revenues, they could they could literally have any value attached to them that you wanted to because it was basically it wasn't limited by the mechanics of pounds shillings and pence so these these were infinite growth stories and the moment they started to become constrained by just by by simple you know economic and business gravity they stopped being exciting so for as long as tesla has this is a perpetual sort of jam tomorrow stock it can have any valuation you want because it's like saying you know, there could be a Tesla in every garage, but that's that's clearly an absurd, you know, it's fanciful idea. But nevertheless, it's it's when it starts sort of meeting its own set targets and heaven forfend actually generating some profit, it, it'll, it'll be yesterday's story by by that time that comes. It, I don't I don't know the, I don't know the financials that well. 
and and you know and I, and I but I've spent a little bit of time you know sort of cursorily looking at the arguments and as far as I can see the arguments for where it is and where it could be in the future there just are none other than noise and I think Tim's exactly right you, you make exactly the right analogy it's the same thing it's just it's just sort of noise there's nothing really real about hope, it and I do think, it's a lot of hope yeah it's all it's all hope and narrative and, and then you and then you see that whatever the third CFO in a row walk out and be replaced by a 30 year old who's got no big board um, accounting experience, you know. I mean, all of these things for me are are sort of or the third, pretty alarming. Or, or, red or flag. the third spliff being lit on a CEO's desk. Yeah, yeah. All of these things, you know. They're, they're, but that's kind of also it, you know. So if it does happen, and 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 suddenly that that sort of does all implode, if if it does, you know, I, that's exactly right. There've been so many red flags on this thing, you know. Whether it's him smoking a spliff on TV or or whatever it is, there's just been one after another. And the idea that the market can ignore all of this and then suddenly have a cold shower, I think that that will be what's kind of what I mean about, I think that will be a bit of a shock. Um, and I think there has to be a a moment of, oh, wow, um, should it happen? Um, but obviously, we shouldn't get too too focused on one particular equities um, effect on anything. I just, I just feel like the market's looking for a reason, and that may be one of the ones to watch out for. I think we come back to narrative because you know there's so much embodied, encapsulated in in what Tesla represents. If we bring things closer to home, I mean, I was writing last week about the potential, and this is a narrative. It's clearly a narrative. The potential impact of the failure of Patisserie Valerie. Um, now, I don't know whether there's any wider significance to it, but you know, it did it did lead me to quote with 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 growing appreciation of the quality of the writing from uh, J.K. Galbraith's account of the Great Crash because he talks about this term the bezel, when he says, um, you know, uh, this the, the, the weeks, I'm just quoting very, very briefly, weeks, months, or years may elapse between the commission of the crime and its discovery. This is a period, incidentally, when the embezzler has his gain, and the man who has been embezzled, oddly enough, feels no loss. There is a net increase in psychic wealth. At any given time, there exists an inventory of undiscovered embezzlement in, or more precisely, not in, the country's business and banks. This inventory, it should perhaps be called the bezel, amounts any moment to millions of dollars. And it's it's a fantastic example of of how the business environment can the, the mood can change on a dime. He says, in depression, all this is reversed. Money is watched with a narrow, suspicious eye. The man who handles it is assumed to be dishonest until he proves himself. Otherwise, audits are penetrating and meticulous. I don't think anyone could accuse that of uh, uh, Grant Thornton, who were doing the audit for um, for Patisserie Valerie. Commercial morality is enormously improved. The bezel shrinks. So my question is a straightforward one: um, Is there a, is there a likelihood that Grant Thorn that, that Patisserie Valerie could do to Grant Thornton what Enron did to Arthur Anderson? Well, I mean, I think that, 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 yeah, I mean that opens up the whole the whole the whole accountancy can of worms. And I read that 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 book Bean Counters, which I don't know if either of you two have read. I haven't read that. Um, it sounds it like very, a flatter, it sounds like a flattering portrayal of the accountancy profession. Yeah, being being Kansas, I think author's called Richard Brooks. I can't remember. It's it's quite similar to Shredded about yeah. RBS. Um, so, but it's about it's about the accountancy profession and um, the way in which the audit is has for a long time been used to um, secure the far more profitable consultancy business. A bit um, like a bit like research for investment banks being an entree into all their other services. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's a very good book. It's very readable. So if you wanted to, as you mentioned at the beginning, 
book recommendations or whatever. I mean, I certainly would suggest it. It's not, it's not, it's not it's probably not a right rollicking read quite to the degree shredded for. Um, uh, because shredded is just completely hilarious. Uh, but, but, you know, it is very good and it is readable. Um, and it's very interesting. And I learned quite a bit about, about quite how, um, blameworthy that particular part of the overall shamozzle is. Um, so look, yeah, you, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's another whole can of worms that that profession. And again, I don't know that much about it, but I wonder who, I wonder who's accounting Enron. I mean, who's accounting Tesla is what what that immediately makes me wonder. That's a Freudian slip if ever there was one. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Fantastic. Uh, the one thing I was going to ask at the beginning, I never quite got around to it. For for someone who's let's say self self uh, invested or or just just looking for for guidance about you know how to manage money. What are the what are the things if if you know if someone could go, go take a time machine and go back to visit you at the start of your career, what do you wish you'd been told at that early date that that that's taken you some time to to get to, and you wish you'd heard it earlier? If that if that makes sense as a question. Yeah, um, well, there's no doubt. I definitely know the answer to that question. Um, although it's not whether they told me. What, what I wish I'd listened to it, or I wish I'd I'd been able to do it, which is just that thing about emotional investing. Is very simple, which is your emotions are always exactly the other end of the trade. Um, and funny enough, I did actually, um, I did manage to do some of this recently in, in 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 the fund, which is you know if you're looking at you, the stocks you're buying and you're feeling you're feeling quite ill about the prospect of whether you 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 either want those positions or you should be buying more, then you buy more. And equally, if you're feeling incredibly pleased with yourself and aren't you so clever, then that is a pretty good sign. And I'm sure you two would both agree with this one. If you're thinking, gosh, I'm so clever, isn't that, isn't that going brilliantly? You should pretty aggressively be top slicing that position um, against yourself and your own genuine skill set. So effectively, the advice to the investor is have a sick bucket at your side when you, when you put on your trades. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Well, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, that, that plays into George Soros's style of investing. I mean, he always said that uh, – actually, his son, Paul Soros, said that – Despite everything um, that George Soros says he uh, does or his investment process, it's despite everything he says about his investment process, in fact, the thing that was his, his greatest signal was his back. Whenever he had a bad position, he would suddenly get this crook in his back and it would like make him get out of the market because instinctively you know, and I think that's what you're saying there, Ned. Instinctively, you kind of just know whether the, the position's right or wrong. But actually, whether you will admit it to yourself is is another matter. And that that's one of the reasons why I use technicals, because it takes that emotion out of it. Can you re- can you remove your 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 emotional bias? I mean, I I my my eight year old likes looking at charts. Mm. Um, so he, he we do this, I suppose, once every couple of weeks or whatever. He'll go, can we, you know, he asked me to get the get them up on my phone yeah and he doesn't know what any of them are and he and he calls them yeah, um, yeah well that, that's and a- he calls them with he calls them with 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 with, with pure pattern recognition skills yeah and yeah, um yeah. I, I just love that i love that yeah, <laughs> so i sit there yeah. go, what about this one well this one i'm definitely down dad uh yeah it's <laughs> you know, and, I, and there's some there's something really wonderful about it. in fact i really should we should really be trying to log his track record actually to see whether um whether it, he can outperform all the rest of us it will be better than like, the professionals like, they've they've done tests they've done these they've there's been so many variations of this theme 
but it's uh, you know the the Lambeth Council dustman um, study that was done. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but we used to laugh about that in the bank where where um, they they did this thing where they asked Lambeth Council dustmen what the rate of inflation would be, interest rates and the level of the stock market would be one year in the future. They did exactly the same thing to top city economists. And guess who got it right? The Lambeth Council yeah. dustman, not the top paid city economist. And it, so it's, it's, it's sort of like instinctively, I think everybody knows, it's just tapping into that. Now, if you can tap into that using, you know, economics and macro investing and or, or, you know value investing whatever it is you know you use metrics but then you also use your own instinct then that's great but if you can look at a chart and let the market tell you if the market inherently knows that there's a there's uh, at the end of a trend you will see it in the price action and actually i remember tim and i sitting on uh, you know we were doing a, a tv show and i showed tim a chart of the s p and I said to him, what do you think of this? And he says, well, it looks like it's going up. And lo and behold, Tim was, Tim was right. Now, emotionally, I, I was in that phase where I was thinking we're approaching a major top. So I would kind of be resistant to mm. that call. And that, that is where the emotion comes in. But if you'd scribbled the name out and just showed, showed somebody the chart, as you're doing to your son, and said, well, what do you think of this? You'd be surprised at how often you're right. It's just that yeah, well, we can't... He was, he was emphatic. He was emphatic that the S&P is going way lower and actually actually sort of laughed after he said it as well. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, yeah, you, so, should, so you should log it. Not why, investment why, advice, by the way. Why don't, why don't you set up a little sort of spreadsheet of his calls and then just see how yeah, they go? Right. Open an IG account. Let's, let's, let's not fiff and, fiff and faff around. Come let's, on, let's, let's do it. In. Let's do it. That's, what a great idea. That would be so funny. Especially yeah. if he becomes a, but don't tell him if you tell him too much about what's going on that there's money on it, he'll suddenly change the way he looks at it. So you, yeah, no, 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 you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. He and he and he will clock that. But I think the, I the think reward, the reward will have to be with Maoams or something, you know, a yeah, or, or, reward, a match so, attacks. Yeah, I used to do this in the bank when I would talk to traders, and I, because I, I would just be able to look at the chart and go, yeah, yeah, it's going up, it's going up, and they'd be like, really? They'd go, yeah, 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 it's going up. Just go and buy it, and they go, oh, okay, okay, but it's so high. No, 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 it's going up, it's going up, and they go, and they go and buy it, and then, then they say, well, what do you think? How Paul laughed as he was wheeled into intensive care. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then, then you know, if they say, what do you think? This is this is something to look out for, Ned. Um, when when they, when you I always say if you get more than two or three sentences from me about a chart, ignore it because I don't know. And so if I was like, oh, yeah, it's a bit of a level there, and if it breaks that, maybe this will happen. If that happens, you know, I don't know. You know, I basically I'm just being polite. I'm just trying to give you a, a view of the market. But when it's when it's there, and when you, when your son says it and laughs, then you know that he's going to be right. This is what I look for in other people when they're looking at charts when I'm teaching them how to read charts. So you know instinctively when you've got a good trade because it's it's really clear. But when I say, what do you think of that? And they go, oh, well, you know, it might be this, it might be that, then then there's no trade there. And that's, that's, the, that's what you have to hone, that skill of just knowing when you know and ignoring everything else. And that's it's a pretty hard thing to do because the market is always there saying, you know, you've got this temptation to always want to invest and always want to trade. But there's only a few times when you'll make your, your, your money. And most of the time, sitting on your hands is what you have to do. That's very hard. 
actually it brings up another point just quickly, which is that, um, so, so what would you, what would you teach? What would you say to somebody about how to go about it? And, and actually it, it, it makes me think of something else, which is, you know, your, your, your special skill or, or your knowledge base is in technicals. You know, my, mine is being refined down to gold, silver and gold and silver mining equities. You know, don't try and be um, a jack of all trades either. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the chances of you being able to <laughs> do all, all things is, is limited. Let's yeah. put it like that. Being generous. Um, so work out what your, what your approach is. And be comfortable with that, and don't start thinking you you know you're a um, you're a, a financial polymath or whatever the particular. Yeah, I'm sure Tim, what the real word for that is, um, you know that that's not a good idea. That's absolutely right. That's a great advice because there there are things that work inherently for people um, and their mindset and their process. <clears throat> My nephew's a super intelligent math whiz and he can program and he's very interested in the markets and I was trying to teach him a bit about technicals and he was much more interested in Tim Price in value investing and uh, you know much to my chagrin <laughs> but you know I was very pleased about but, that really but, but the but, great thing is you can do both the great yeah, thing is you can do both of course you can of course you can of course um but he, you know he absolutely loved you know you know the the books that you recommend him and and your approach and so and and uh, he wanted to apply his his mathstick skills to unearthing value investing um, opportunities because he said that works well with his mindset. And so, I mean, I guess, I guess the issue there, Paul, is that the the, you know, the the value argument. And let's face it, Warren Buffett is as good a, uh, a sort of a, an advocate of this plus or minus as anybody, particularly early Buffett, not so much later Buffett, because I think maybe he takes his eye off the wheel a little bit, just by dint of nothing else, the fact that the, the, fund, the funds he now manages are so, are so enormous. But the I'd say at its heart, value investing is simply mathematics. It's simply, you know, it's things like the miracle of compounding. Yes. And it shows you the benefit of, of buying good stuff cheaply. And that's a very mathematical process. So in a way, you could say, you know, basically, you've got an option here. You can either you've got a choice. You can either you can either invest on the basis of maths or you can invest on the basis of magic. But maths is more likely to work. And then supplementing or complementing that with a momentum strategy. Now, I don't have the mathematical skills to do that. Your, you may, your nephew might, but you'd need some kind of slightly smart algorithm to work out, you know, on a I mean, you, this is because this is your bread and butter when, you know, at what point you sell something versus what point you buy it. But it's it's a shorter term, much more short term momentum driven process. But they're not they're not mutually exclusive. I think no. they can be they could be both both deployed quite successfully if, if you're willing to be patient and uh, you know again you can master the psychology of it. What Ned's saying is 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 absolutely right to, for most people, Tim. Um, in, oh, in, the, in the sense that most people like go investing is this box and this is this box. What I think is interesting about you is that you you don't look at it like that. You go, well, no, this box is, is interesting, but actually so is this one. So I'm going to have these two together and I'm actually going to invest in gold as well because I think that's important. And you, so you, you've, you're looking across different disciplines and drawing them together, whereas most people seem to focus. And I think that's a strength, um, but most yeah. people seem to focus on their their chosen discipline and just get their head well, down. I, I think it. it's I think it's a fun, and Ned Ned may agree with this. I think it's a function of when you're when you're managing money, particularly for wealthy people, there cannot be or there should not be one answer. There has to be a variety of things mm. because if if you believe the ultimate objective is to is to build a kind of Nassim Taleb style anti-fragile 
robust portfolio, almost by definition, any one thing isn't going to be the answer. You have to, you know, if you're most concerned about avoiding the risk of ruin, you can't put all your eggs in one in one uh, basket. No, you can. You, that's absolutely right, Tim. But I would still say it's the same thing. So what, what I'm going to say is that I think that an approach of um, being value biased, but but you know, you you're a specialist in 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 managing a carefully thought out, diversified portfolio for a particular kind of client. Now that is still one particular way of approaching markets. What you're not also doing is going right. I also want to beat um, every hedge fund over the next six months. Sure, you know, sure, um, sure. You know what I mean? It's still a particular a slice. Whereas I think that's what some people do is they 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 they're not recognising you need you need to know a lot about one thing. Well, I think than- the way the way I'd sum it up is, and it's it's a truism. It's it's not not an original. I'm sure many people have said it. If you do not know who you are as an investor. The market is an expensive place to find out. That's it, exactly. You're always going to deliver a, a, a one-line. Um. Tim, it's guaranteed, isn't it? <laughs> Love it. Brilliant. So, media picks, gentlemen. What what have you got for us, Tim? Um, this week, two two films that are um, thematically connected. Uh, the Last Movie Star, uh, starring Burt Reynolds, probably Burt Reynolds' uh, last film. Uh, having said that, I, I, I should have checked. I, I, I'm assuming he may no longer be with us, but maybe he's still around. Hopefully he is. But either way, certainly his, his most recent film, the last movie star starring Burt Reynolds and a film called The Leisure Seeker uh, starring Helen Mirren and Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland fresh from his triumph in, in Trust that was uh, on over uh, Christmas, which, which we, I think we spoke about in a, in a previous podcast. Both these films are basically to do with the ageing, process to do with getting old and approaching you know the final the final moment that neither of them is remotely well reviewed on imdb i think that is simply because if we take imdb as being an american site i think americans fundamentally do not really like even talking about well i don't think anybody likes talking about getting old and the prospect of death but i think there's that's maybe perhaps most uh, unacceptable for an economy that's driven by hope and youth and all those kind of things. Either way, The Leisure Seeker and The Last Movie Star, both I found quite quite gently moving, uh, elegiac things about the business of getting old, and I, I quite like them. Fantastic. Um, sadly, Burt Reynolds did die in September 2018, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, definitely check those out, Tim. Thank you. And Ned, what, what have you got for us um, well, well, I so so my 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 sort of um, TV watching, I'm, I'm afraid, is is all sport related. So uh-huh. that sort of falls away uh-huh. straight away. I, I don't I don't really watch films. Um, not that I'm going to judge anybody else equally, and I wouldn't hope to be judged for watching cricket. <laughs> but uh, but what I would I would say is I've read um, I've read a book um, called "And Forgive Them Their Debts" by Michael Hudson, who's a very interesting fellow. Uh, and it's a book about the the history of debt jubilees. Um, so mm. it's sort of, I'm afraid it's it's not really going off and, and on a tangent. It's still talking about what we've been talking no, about. It's brilliant. But this, this, can this, be could yet, this could yet be very, very prescient. Mm. I really recommend it. It's so interesting because he originally basically started doing the source um, research for it in the 80s and has held it back because he knew that it wasn't the right time to, to put the book out there because no one would care. Mm. Um, but I mean, there's all sorts of stuff in there, like I mean, things that would amuse you both. That sort of the origin of the phrase "clean slate" and 
the fact that the Rosetta Stone is a debt jubilee proclamation. I mean, there's all sorts really? of things in there which are really, really wonderful. It's, it, you know, it's it's quite academic. It's it's not it, again, it's not a right rollicking read, but um, but I, you know, I've enjoyed it hugely and learned quite a lot from it. Wow. Um, the, the biblical meaning of of liberty. Uh, from debt penury and all this stuff, um, which is is mortgage, sort of covered in mortgage, the, the term mortgage. Mm, mm, mm. All of all of this is very much sort of uh, hidden, occulted from view, and worth worth learning about. So I, I recommend that book. That's definitely on brand for our listenership. So that that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Ned. I'm going to say very quickly my one, which is I started to watch, settle down with big interest to watch Roma, uh, the Alfonso Caron film. Um, that's had so much hype about it. And I can just honestly say I have absolutely no idea why it's got such high reviews. I mean, I was just... Nothing has happened. Nothing happened in about an hour and a half. Have, have, and you seen a, have you seen The Shape of Water? No, I have seen The Shape of Water. And I, I didn't mind it as much as you did. I, I thought it was actually okay. You know, I, I, I saw it in cinema and it was all right. But Roma, I'm just like... It got, it was, it, it, you know, it was nominated for Best Cinematography for a start. And all there is is panning. It's panning, panning, panning in a wide shot. I mean... Incl- it, including your own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you've ever seen The Revenant, the the cinematography in that is just outstanding. It's outstanding. And how how on earth you could give it to, to Roma or even nominate it. I just have no idea. I'm sorry, but it's just like, okay, it's a different sort of film. Maybe it's not supposed to be so narrative driven. It's supposed to a different angle on things. It's, it's a quieter sort of more slow style of film, which I don't necessarily mind, but it's, it's considered to be a masterpiece. I have no is, idea. Is, is Roma the the Netflix uh, production? Yes, it's the Netflix. Is there a production. risk? Is there a risk that this is basically massive Netflix hype then? Well, I, else? the first thing that popped into my head. Well, it can't be Netflix hype themselves because it seems to have transcended across every. Well, everybody seems to give it high ratings on on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes and everywhere. And I just cannot understand it. I mean, I've looked at some of the reviews that saying the Emperor has no clothes. What on earth is going on? And that's kind of how I feel about it. I just don't, I don't, maybe, what have I missed about this film that that everybody else or certain other people can see? The only thing I can think of, it just reminded me, and I'm not sure, Ned, if you're old enough to remember this, but possibly you are, but do you remember Zig Sputnik, the band that got hyped in the 80s? I don't, I don't remember that, but okay. um, okay. Well, there was a but, band, but, but they, they, they sound, they, they sound fishnet um, masks. I remember them well. Yeah, so there was this band basically called Zig Zig Sputnik, and there was so much hype about this band that before it came out, and they was just saying this is the next big thing. They're absolutely love, love, amazing. Love missile, love missile F one eleven. I think was there. Uh, How did you remember that, Tim? I couldn't have remembered that, <laughs> but that is that's phenomenal, Tim. Take my hat, my hat off to you for remembering that, but. Zig Zig Sputnik were, it was just like everyone at school was talking about it. It's like, oh, this new band, they're going to be amazing. I would challenge you to go online and listen to their song. It was like, what on earth is this? You know, I don't want to swear on this program. But it was just absolutely awful. Awful. And I course, quite li- I personally quite liked it, but it was basically just a load <laughs> of samples all mashed together. Yeah, but the, it was... The it, what- the, the only reason I remember it probably at all is because my best friend at the time, a guy called Andy Simmons, who's I think now in Australia, 
Uh, he was he was into music, so he was I think bass player in his own band. Uh, but he bought the he bought the album, and the whole thing was such a commercially driven thing that you know you remember old albums that like the, the the vinyl stuff that would have little gaps between the tracks. Yeah, Zig Zig Sputnik had ads during those little gaps. No. So, all of the album was dedicated to basically hype of one form or another. The wow. whole thing was, it was like something created by, who was the guy that did, um, uh, no, God Save the, uh, yes, who was the, yes, yes. The, the guy who did God Save the King and the, the Sex Pistols, yes, the, yeah, God Save the, the manager, he, yeah, Malcolm yeah, McLaren. Mal- Malcolm the whole thing McLaren. was like a Malcolm McLaren exercise in squeezing the juice uh, of, a, of a band, you know, to, to maximum commercial effect. I just wondered when something like that would come into our, sort of society when when somebody would do the same thing again i i don't look i don't know for sure whether this is this is what's happened where the system's been gamed and you know people have been paid for review i have no idea i didn't watch the whole film i have to say as well so perhaps the second after an hour and a half it all changes and it becomes a masterpiece but i i very much doubt it um so that that's my take on it and i'd be very interested to hear from other people who perhaps really like it and can explain to me what it is about it and whether i should finish the film but my god i, I really felt like i had to to warn people about this particular uh this particular piece of media but but fantastic stuff so um ned if people want to get in contact with you are you what's the best way of doing that is it twitter or website or both well yeah i mean so so i'm 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 sort of um uh, an acquired taste like Tide Pods on Twitter, um, and the fund is you can look it up through through the Merion website. Okay, fantastic. So, um, Ned, thank you so much for your thoughts. It's been an absolutely fascinating podcast. I think we're all going to go out and buy some gold, but you're already there. And obviously, Tim, thank you once again. It's I can't believe it's been fifty episodes. Can you? Uh, that's that's fifty hours of our life we're never going to get back from. <laughs> okay and on that note thank you so much for listening and all your support thanks again ned not at all not at all chats enjoy the rest of your day you You too you too bye now bye 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 this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor